Well, good morning. It's good to be here. Welcome visitors, old friends, new friends as well. Thank you uh, for worshiping with us. Um, my name is Norman. I'm one of the assistant pastors here at King's Cross. Um, if you're visiting, uh, first timers, welcome. Um, as Stephen shared in his opening, um, in the call to worship, God loves you and he's overjoyed that you're here to worship with us. And we're grateful that you're here to worship with us this morning. Would you join with me in prayer as we ask the Lord to speak through his word? Let's pray. Faithful God, we come before you knowing that you delight when your people come together to hear from you. So this morning, we ask for your spirit to be with us and to teach us. Help us to understand not just the text, but help us to understand our hearts and also your heart, that we can grow and be changed into the image of your Son, in whose name we pray. Amen. Um, so we are continuing in our series in the book of Esther, um, living in meekness and faithfulness through the difficulties of life. Uh, the book of Esther is the testimony of a people who are able to laugh in the face of ridiculous evil because they know that their God is good, that their God is true. And we're, we're in the middle of the story. We're at actually at the turning point of the story, the crux, if you will, where everything is happening all at once. And if you're just joining us today, if you don't know this story, or even if you do know this story, <laughs> Um, it could be a little jarring to jump right in from the middle. Um, so let me try, uh, just both for our visitors and maybe for some of you, um, give a summary of sorts from last week that will lead into our text today. Um, so last week, uh, Pastor Joshua was leading us through chapter 5, where Esther put on her royal clothes, uh, her armor, and entered into the king's chambers at the risk of her life. You know, remember in chapter 4, she said she could die. She entered the royal chambers to ask the king to intervene against Haman's plot to kill all of the Jewish people. So this was a little unexpected to see Esther there. So the, the king, in chapter 5, recognizing that something was up, asks Esther, what is your request? I will grant it even up to half my kingdom. It's quite generous. But instead of asking immediately, Esther delays. She takes charge. She invites the king to a feast of three. The king, Queen Esther, and Haman, of all people. So the narrator's teasing us along. And at this banquet, this first banquet, the king asks again, ask again, you know, what is your request? What is your request? And Esther again delays, right? We're, we're in suspense. De Esther's like, uh, one more banquet, okay? And, and then I'll let you know what my request is. And Pastor Joshua led us to see how insecure that Haman was because he was so joyful, glad of heart, the text says, to be the only guest to dine with the king and queen. Something must be up. And he was asked not just once, 
as we see. But at that second feast, invited again. But then he was joyful, and then immediately he was really upset. His mood immediately soured when his arch nemesis Mordecai refused to show him respect. And we ended chapter five with Haman joyful again. Why? Because his wife and his friends tell him, "You know what? You can just kill Mordecai and humiliate him on the gallows. Create a six-story-high gallows. That's how yeah, the cubits there. It, it's it's that high." You'll have your revenge," they tell him. So we enter today's text with all these unknowns. We don't know what Esther is going to request of the king because she hasn't done it yet. The second feast for the king, the queen, and Haman still hasn't happened. And because of Mordecai erecting that gallows, we don't know if Mordecai will even be alive before the second feast. Lots of things are in suspense. So we're, we get to chapter six, and we're like, "What will happen next? What's going to happen?" So with that, the storyteller leaves these cliffhangers, so we can enter into chapter six. So would you follow along with me as we read from Esther, chapter six? On that night, the king could not sleep. And he gave orders to bring the book of memorable deeds, the chronicles, and they were read before the king. And it was found written how Mordecai had told about Bigtana and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs who guarded the threshold, and who had sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. And the king said, "What honor and distinction has been bestowed on Mordecai for this?" The king's young men who attended him said. Nothing has been done for him, and the king said, "Who is in the court?" Now, Haman had just entered the outer court of the king's palace to speak to the king about having Mordecai hanged on the gallows that he had prepared for him. And the king's young men told him, "Haman is there, standing in the court." And the king said, "Let him come in." So Haman came in. And the king said to him, "What should be done to the man whom the king delights to honor?" And Haman said to himself, "Whom would the king delight to honor more than me?" And Haman said to the king, "For the man whom the king delights to honor, let royal robes be brought, which the king has worn, and the horse that the king has ridden, and on whose head a royal crown is set." And let the robes and the horse be handed over to one of the king's most noble officials, and let them dress the man whom the king delights to honor, and let them lead him on the horse through the square of the city, proclaiming before him, "Thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor." So then the king said to Haman, "Hurry, take the robes and the horse, as you have said." And do so to Mordecai the Jew, who sits at the king's gate. Leave out nothing that you have mentioned. So Haman took the robes and the horse, and he dressed Mordecai and led him through the square of the city, proclaiming before him, "Thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor." Then Mordecai returned to the king's gate, 
But Haman hurried to his house, mourning with his head covered. And Haman told his wife Zeresh and all his friends everything that happened to him. Then the wise men and his wife and his wife Zeresh said to him, "If Mordecai, before whom you have begun to fall, is of the Jewish people, you will not overcome him, but will surely fall before him." While they were yet talking to him, the king's eunuchs arrived and hurried to bring Haman to the feast that Esther had prepared. The word of the Lord. Um, this whole chapter is quite humorous. We're like waiting to get here. Um, this is a part of the story where, when I was telling my kids this at night, they were just giggling because they can see what's going on. And it's funny, the author achieves humor in this chapter through withholding information. We watch misunderstanding playing out. They're, they're talking to each other, but not talking about the same thing, and they don't know it. Misunderstanding is playing out against Haman. I think we can see how Haman's foolishness and self-aggrandizement works against him. The scene in this chapter is teaching us wisdom. Wisdom through the humiliation of a fool. Haman, in this chapter, is an anti-model of wisdom. So,、uh, while a quick read through this text may cause us to laugh at Haman's expense, as some of you noticed,、um, we're going to slow down a bit as we look through chapter six. We're going to slow down to, to see the questions that this text may be putting to our hearts and to us. As we look in this passage, so we will look at two hiddens and one revealed.、Um, the first hidden is the hidden activity of God. The hidden activity of God.、Uh, second, the hidden desires of our hearts. The hidden desires of our hearts, and finally, what is revealed: the revealed righteousness of God. So, the hidden activity of God, the hidden desires of our hearts. And finally, the revealed righteousness of God.、Uh, so, the hidden activity of God.、Um, this first point is will be brief, but but it is foundational. And if you ignore the other two points I, and just hold on to this one, do it.、Uh, it's foundational. At the turn, as I was explaining before, between chapter five and chapter six, we're thrown into confusion. Right after learning of Haman's plans. We don't know if this is going to be Mordecai's last night. We don't know if he'll make it to the morning or if he'll be hanged before sunrise. He might die before Esther even gets to make her request to the king. I mean, Esther doesn't know this. We're in suspense. But we see God at work through the way the author uses coincidence and happenstance, as we've done, as we've seen in previous chapters. We see God at work through the author's use of coincidence and, hap and happenstance. L let me try to list some of them for us.、Um, on the night, on the very night before Haman was to approach the king about killing Mordecai, it just so happens that the king has a bout of insomnia. He can't sleep. Of all the nights, and of all the remedies to help him sleep. Right? What does the king ask for? He asks for a bedtime story from the book of memorable deeds. It's like if you ask to read a textbook to help you go to sleep. 
But of all the stories in the book of memorable deeds in the Chronicles to be read, the king's servants who are attending to him just so happen to read for him the account of Mordecai saving him from an assassination plot. Of all the accounts to read in that book, and it's this saving that it's a deed that has gone unrewarded. So the king, as we have seen throughout all the chapters before, he can never make a decision by himself. He's not, he's not a wise king, right? He could never make even the simplest of decisions. So he asks for a court officer. He's looking for someone to advise him. He wants advice, and it just so happens that as he is saying, "Is there anyone there to give me advice?" Haman. Walks in, in the outer court. He's the highest court official, as you might remember. He walks in. What are the chances of all the people that are going to walk in? It's Haman. We know why. That the author tells us why Haman is there. He wants to ask for permission to kill Mordecai, but the king has no idea. He wants advice. So when the king summons, summons Haman. Just as he enters into the palace court, you might wonder, "What? Like, has a king been looking for me?" <laughs> right. So the king's summon catches him off guard, and it just so happens that Haman caught off guard, and just throughout the whole narrative, he's like desiring his own promotion. Right. He ends up exalting the very one that he wants to kill. And at that point, our worries for Mordecai abate. We're, we're okay. All of these coincidences, happenstance, is the way that the author communicates through the story. It's the literary device. It's how the author communicates that God's hand is at work. God's hand is at work. We're supposed to, at all of these that I listed out, there is at least half a dozen. At every one of these coincidences, we're supposed to raise our eyebrows and and be like, "That's a little too convenient." And we're supposed to affirm, "God, it's you. God, it is you. You are at work. God is at work. In the confusion that we experience, God is at work." So this first point that that the hidden activity of God. God is at work. Where does that leave us today? Maybe you're asking after you know trying to. Maybe you're already trying to parallel this to our own lives. Maybe you're asking, does this mean that we need to figure out where God is at work in our midst? I know sometimes when we read accounts like this, we end up trying all the mechanics, but not the principle. We try all the mechanics of this passage, but not the principle. So, by mechanics, I mean that some of us may leave from here or leave from reading this story, and we start looking for meaning in every single thing. Is God working here? Is God doing this? We're, we're looking for meaning. We'll wonder if the fact that the bubble tea shop ran out of bubbles just as I entered is God trying to tell me something. Or we will think about the fact that we circled around three times today to look for parking and not four. Is God doing something? Or it's a humid, 
gross day today as we're sitting in this room. Is God trying to foil some plans? We get distracted by mechanics, and we forget the principle that's going on. So I'm not saying that God isn't over your parking spot or the bubble tea shop, or or any or the weather. God is certainly over those things. But the life of faith that we are called to live is not one where we try to master God's mind. We're not trying to have God's wisdom and knowledge in all things. The life of faith, the principle, is this: that we live resting on God's good character. We live at rest, trusting that God is at work. He will bring about righteousness. He will bring about goodness. He will make things right, not because we can see it or detect it or discern the tea leaves in your cup. He will bring about righteousness because of who he is. He is a God of righteousness. God's activity is something we can rest on. We can rest on it. It's not something we're trying to figure out, though we can look for it. But sometimes we we get the order wrong. God's activity, his his activity in the world around us, in our church, in our lives, it's not dependent on whether or not we can figure it out. So King's Cross, um, we've been and are in a period between the chapters, so to speak. It seems like anything could happen. And I bet that some of us were looking for signs. We're looking for signs of goodness, signs of relief, signs that things might get better. I hope with you on those things. I'm looking for those too. I hope that good news will come. But I want to encourage you all that God's character is not dependent on whether or not we receive good news. God is good. God is still good, even if bad news comes our way.、Uh, last week, I was having a conversation,、um, and in conversation, the prophet of Habakkuk came up, a prophet that we recently studied. For those of you that were in the Affinity Week studies, Habakkuk prayed to God out of his distress. Things were going bad, but what was what actually happened? God's answer to him. Was worse than he could have ever imagined. He was actually really mad at God's reply. Why, God? Why would you do this? Yet through it all, the refrain of Habakkuk is that the righteous will live by faith. By faith, he knew God was still on his throne. God knows what he's doing. The pastor who wrote the book of Hebrews encourages readers in hardship, and he encourages you today. The truth that God disciplines those that He loves. He's working on us, especially in our pain. God is at work. God is at work, sisters and brothers. Whether we see it or not, the hidden activity of God. This first point—it's it, not a puzzle for us to solve. That's not why I'm talking about God's hidden activity. He's not a puzzle for us to solve. God's activity is a truth. That we can rest our souls in. The author of Esther, she, he's using a literary motif 
to show this to us. God is at work. He is bringing righteousness in his own way that we would not believe even if we were told. In all that's going on in our church, in our country, in all that may be going on in your own life, we learn from this text to live by faith in a good God who has not abandoned his throne. It may seem like that, but he has not. He is at work. This is the hidden activity of God. It is foundational to living out our faith. This is the hidden activity of God. Next, we'll look at the, the hidden desires of our hearts. The hidden desires of our hearts. Now, I want to look at Haman's heart. Um, it's on full display in this passage. Um, his is not hidden, but it shows us where we need to look. Because his entire response, if you looked at his response to the king, his response tells what he desires in his heart of hearts, in his deepest part, what, what drives him, what energizes him. For Haman, right, he said to himself, and, and I don't know if you read this this way, I mean, I kind of did it. I read it in Jafar's voice when he's talking to the sultan. Why, that's me, like the royal vizier. Uh, anyway, um, so he, Haman says to himself, whom would the king delight to honor more than me, right? And if you look closely at what he requests, look at what he requests. It's clear that he not only wants to be honored. If you look closely at what he asks for, um, he wants to be king. He wants to be king. Look closely at what he says. He, he wants a cloak, that the king himself has already worn, fit for a king. And then he wants a horse fit for a king. A horse so fit, the author is trying to make a joke here, a horse so fit that the horse even wears a crown. Did you catch that? And he wanted to be known throughout the city, heralded by a high-ranking noble, a member of the noble class. He wanted to be paraded around as a king would be celebrated in the, in the city square. Now, I think for the vast majority of us, we don't have, we might not have such high aspirations for ourselves. At least I don't think so. But there is a resonance here in Haman's request that I think we can all connect with. There's a resonance here for all of us. It may not be a high position in a court, but it's a desire that controls us. It's a need that controls us, that, that, that blinds us, that paralyzes us even from ourselves and those around us. Maybe it's a desire to be respectable among your friends, among your peers, such that you're constantly fighting like imposter syndrome. So many conversations about this. Maybe you don't want people to think you're a a bad parent, or bad at your job. We're so preoccupied with our self-image around other people. And, or, or maybe you're just doing everything that you can just to belong. You just want to belong, so you're fighting everyone's perceptions and expectations of you. It consumes us. We're thinking about it all the time. In some measure, all of us are consumed with ourselves just like Haman. Right. Just notice how often you look at yourself the next time you're on a Zoom call. You, 
There's studies. You, you look at your own picture way more than anyone else. Our preoccupation with how people see us, respect us, trust us, perceive us, it blinds us. It blinds us from reality. We end up living in a reality of our own. It keeps us from seeing the needs of people around us. It keeps us from answering the call upon our lives for, if you remember from chapter four, from answering the call for such a time as this. So all of us, church, this is a, this, the second point, I can't really get into specifics because it's so broad. All of us, all of our hearts are captured by something in the same way that the desire for public praise captured Haman's heart. I can't tell you what has captured your heart. I can't. And even if I could, if even if I could like do one forever, you know, it, it will have no effect unless the spirit convicts you of it. So my prayer as we look into our hearts is for the spirit to lead you, for the spirit to lead us that we would have courage to go where the spirit leads and to attend to what he reveals about us. What do you, what is the desire of your heart of hearts? I pray that all of us would have courage to repent and turn to him and do what is right. If you're at a loss as to what, like what, is, I, something has captured my heart. If you're at a loss, if you're at a loss of, of figuring that out, um, or if your response to this is like, oh, I know who needs to hear this, and that's another way of avoiding your own heart, um, my practical word for you today is ask someone who knows you, someone who knows you and, and, and loves you, loves you enough to tell you if you asked. Oftentimes, I, pretty much all the time, others can see us far more clearly than we can see ourselves. This is the hidden desire of our hearts, and I pray that the Spirit will make it known and give us strength and courage to return to him. Uh, finally, uh, the answer to our true desire, the revealed righteousness of God. Though chapter 6 only brings us part of the way to the resolution of this whole story, um, we still don't know what happens at the second banquet. That, that little last verse in, our, in chapter 6, it's like, we're going to find out soon, so next week. But even this far into the story, we can all already appreciate the righting of wrongs that is taking place. Because all this time since we first were introduced to Mordecai, Mordecai has been ignored. He's been put down. He might, I mean, if you read in between the lines, he might even be blamed for instigating this trouble that led to Haman's genocidal plot. You know, we, we don't get the whole interaction between the people and Mordecai. Mordecai, in a sense, started this. It's almost like beef. But, but in this chapter, we not only celebrate that he is delivered from Haman's plan to kill him that morning, we also celebrate that Mordecai is finally getting praise. After all these events, the author of Esther wants us to recognize who made things right? Who put everything together to make things right? It wasn't Mordecai. Mordecai did not despair when his faithfulness to the king seemed unrewarded. He knew the character of his God. 
that if not according to his plan in, in working with Esther, he said, if you remember from chapter 4, relief and deliverance will rise from another place. If you remember, he had this confidence in who God is. He prayed knowing God could see him. He didn't go around needing people to see his sacrifice or to recognize what he was going through. He was going through a lot, but he prayed knowing God could see, and that was enough. That was enough for him. His faith was grounded in the hidden activity that we talked about. God is at work. The book of Esther is showing us the character of God. For not only is he always working in every situation, even in situations that seem hopeless, as we looked before, the text is telling us that his work is effective. Because we can try all we want to do things. Effort is not the same as being effective. Like, we can try, I can try my best to make, uh, to play basketball. But I can try all I want, but that won't make me effective. God, uh, for those of you who don't know, I play zero sports. Basketball is like kryptonite to me. Um, but for, for God, God is always at work. But if God is always at work but not effective, that's no good. But the book of Esther is telling us that his work is effective in making things right. He can do it. The book of Esther is consistent with Scripture's testimony about God's character towards those who desire righteousness. He will bring it. God will bring it. Um, Hannah, the mother of the prophet Samuel, who was also working through cultural shame, it didn't seem like things were working well for her. When God brought righteousness into her story, when God made things right, she sang these words, and this is from 1 Samuel chapter 2. She sang, The Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and he exalts. He raises up the poor from the dust, and he lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes and inherit a seat of honor. For the pillars of the earth are the Lord's, and on them he has set the world. It is God who exalts. It is also God who humbles. He makes all things right. He is the God of righteousness. And we long for this righteousness, all of us. We long for things to be made right, the righting of all wrongs. And we are dejected when those of the world seek their own unjust promotion, as Haman did, at the expense of others. It, that's, we read this story before this chapter, and we're like, no, this is, this is going all wrong. This should not be. We feel the wrong in our bones. And Jesus feels that with us. When we see injustice happening around us, Jesus feels with us. The Gospel of Luke recounts one account where Jesus taught about righteousness and self-exaltation also around a banquet table, around a feast. Regarding seats of honor and privilege at a banquet, he said, and this is from Luke 14, for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles him himself will be exalted. And he said to the man who had invited him, that is, those with power and privilege, he, excited, he, he said to the man who invited him, when you give a dinner or a banquet, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or rich neighbors, lest they also invite you in return and you be repaid. But when you give a feast, 
Invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you. For you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. In the story of Esther, as with Jesus, the instruction is to not ultimately seek praise and recognition by your own means. You don't want to be rewarded in full, as Jesus taught elsewhere, but to ultimately trust in the God of righteousness, who will make all things right. He made things right for Mordecai, and Jesus makes right for his own people. Because Jesus, as you know, came to the earth not to elevate himself, but to lift us up. For we could never, we, de- we desire this satisfaction in our souls. We could never get that by our own merits. In fact, our own merits, as many of you, as we work, work through confession every Sunday, our merits deserve shame and humiliation, confusion of face. But Jesus came to take our shame upon himself so that we can have the honor that's due to him. The good news of the Christian faith is that the very desires of our souls, it's gifted to us. Jesus gives it to us. We do nothing to earn it. We merely receive and we trust in God's good character, not in our strength to make things right. We stop striving on our own when we say in the depths of our being, Jesus is enough. Jesus is enough. Luke 14 that I just read, that last verse says, Jesus, Jesus said that we will be blessed for we will be honored at the resurrection of the just when Jesus says to, to us, well done, good and faithful servant. That's us. The just All those who put their faith in the goodness of God are justified with him. We are blessed because of the resurrection of Jesus. We are blessed because we are united with him when we trust him, when we place our trust in his work on the cross. We are blessed because of the resurrection of Jesus. This is the good news. And the question for us, if you're still with me in this weather, will you trust him? Will you trust him? Every week, we remember the work of Christ, where when we trust him, we are joined with him. We are in union with him. We remember that every week when we come to this table. That the resurrection shows us that God is not only willing to make things right, he is able, he's effective. His ability is proved in the resurrection in his defeat of sin and death. For on the night that he was betrayed, after giving thanks, Jesus broke. And he said, this is my body, broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, after supper, he took the cup and he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, shed for the forgiveness of sins. Drink it also in remembrance of me. For as often as we eat this bread and we drink this cup, we proclaim the Lord's death until he returns. Would you pray with me? Lord Jesus, we thank you that you are willing and able to keep your promises. 
that even in confusion, when we are unable to even see where you are working, you are. You are. The cross has shown us that your completed work on the cross is still at work today, even in our trials. So Lord Jesus, as we have eaten this bread and drank from the cup, would you give us strength to see with eyes of faith that in every circumstance, you say, I am. When I am weak, unable to speak, still I will call you by name. O shepherd, savior, pastor maker, hold on to my hand. You said, I am. The winds of change and circumstance blow in and all around us. So we find a foothold that's familiar and bless the moments that we feel you nearer. When life had begun, I was woven and spun. You let the angels dance around the throne. And who can say when, but they'll dance again when I am free and finally headed home. I will be weak, unable to speak, Still, I will call you by name. Creator, maker, life sustainer, comforter, healer, my redeemer. Lord and King, beginning and the end. I am. I am. We thank you, Lord Jesus. because you are, I am, with us. We pray in your name. Amen.